Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and in some places, they called me Mr. Tibbs. Uh-huh. I was expecting a different impression from you in this episode, actually, but maybe we'll get to it soon. <laughs> well, uh, Ace got some gum chewing and flapping yeah. around now. Yeah, so. yeah, there we go. That's what I figured. So uh, we want to honor all the actors. Josh. Yes. And, and really give Jason the chance to have a full range of impressions. No, I mean, you know, it's it's my way of showing love when I feel like I can approximate a voice. And yeah. That's it, so. Yeah. Yeah. So what voices are we approximating? Well, in this season... Of awesome movie year we've been talking about the films of 1967 and we have arrived at the academy awards best picture winner which is in the heat of the night featuring Sidney poitier and rod steiger who of course you knew from the way that jason expertly embodied that's that. a no-brainer they were yeah. they probably heard those two impressions like oh they're doing in the heat of the night right so. obviously obviously so this was one of the biggest movies of 1967, um, certainly in terms of the mainstream. It was a big box office hit. It grossed $24.3 million on its budget of $2 million. Uh, and it won five Oscars, including Best Picture, as well as Best Actor for Rod Steiger, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Editing, and Best Sound, and additionally was nominated for Best Director for Norman Jewison and Best Sound Effects, which I never understand the difference. They keep changing those sound awards over the years, but... I don't even have an answer for that. I will say the Best Adapted Screenplay, Sterling Silifan, who we've mentioned before, and Best Editor, Hal Ashby. Yeah, before I guess before he became a director? I think it was before he was directing, he had done this, and the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming for uh, Jewison. Yeah, so a uh, huge sensation there. And, of course, 1967... Quite a year for Sidney Poitier between this and and guess who's coming to dinner and to Sir with Love. There you go. That all one. three and all three about race relations and somehow he gets left out of the Oscar race. I don't understand that. Yeah, well, uh, you did use a word there. But I don't. Might... But I, that's what I thought. But he had already won a Best Actor award in '63. I, I think. think. Yeah. You know, L Lilies of the Field. And it? he yeah. was nominated. He was the first African American actor nominated for an Oscar in '58 for the Defiant Ones. So it would be weird that he was both nominated and won, and then they're like, "Ah, racism. Let's not nominate right. him again." I don't think. I don't know. I just think maybe he was such a ubiquitous star at this point they overlooked him. Well, I think what does happen sometimes is because if he has these three, all of those movies were very successful, were highly acclaimed. And they sort of end up canceling each other out. Some people vote for him for one, some vote for him for another, and he doesn't get enough votes in one to make it. I think that still happens. Yeah, I haven't seen To Sir With Love, but I've obviously seen In the Heat of the Night and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And I'm wondering, because Steiger got this and Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn got that, like, did they almost misplace like the idea was he a lead or a supporting actor i'm wondering i mean maybe and i think maybe also and you know we can get into this a little more that these movies about race relations that they end up crediting the white people for being like you know broad-minded enough or something to participate in these movies which is silly right and we weren't alive then but i will say what's interesting is these are, like we said, three movies about race relations that he took on. And he was the biggest box office star of 1967. So 
Good on you, Mr. Poitier. Yeah, I mean, certainly he's a huge star here. And just because he didn't get those nominations doesn't mean he wasn't a big deal. Oh, I agree. It's just weird that he wouldn't get one, right? Right. No, it is. Um, this movie also did win Best Picture uh, Drama at the Golden Globes and was nominated for a bunch of other minor critics awards and stuff like that. I mean, it was, again, a huge sensation and i'm sure i didn't look but i'm sure poitier was at least nominated for one of those other smaller sure you know best actor national border review two bafta winners and uh like you said best actor and film at the golden globe so yeah so uh hugely acclaimed uh based on the 1965 novel by john ball the first of his novels featuring mr tibbs virgil (laughs) tibbs the uh detective from philadelphia who finds himself in Sparta, Mississippi here, helping to solve a murder uh, reluctantly, I guess we could say. At yeah. least at first. I mean, it's so good structurally, this movie, that like, man, they like, it's, every scene is so full of conflict. It's like, if you want to be a screenwriter, you should watch this movie. So I, I agree. Uh, and mostly this movie was well regarded by critics, although... Interestingly, I think because of the uh, topical nature of the story, critics had a lot to say, sort of uh, influenced by the climate of the time. But to start off, uh, Richard Schickel in Life magazine was a big fan of this movie. He said, obviously, the makers of In the Heat of the Night, based on a novel by John Ball, have a good gimmick going for them. One so intrinsically intriguing that little more than its statement alone would have been enough to hook and hold our attention. Greatly to their credit and without getting preachy, they managed to transcend their cute premise and make a sound, serious, and altogether excellent film that is quite possibly the best we have had from the U.S. this year. For what develops out of the confrontation between an urbane northern Negro and a crude southern cop is not merely a good whodunit or a fine demonstration that races can work together, but first and foremost, a drama of two deeply etched characters in conflict. That's kind of goes back to what I'm saying. These characters are so well developed and so diametrically uh, different in so many ways that like, it's almost natural that they'll have a conflict in every scene. And like, it just keeps building and building. So I think uh, really well done. Yeah. I mean, and I think what's good that he gets to that. I think some other critics didn't necessarily agree, but to me is that, these feel like real characters. They don't just feel like mouthpieces for points of view or representations of stereotypes about the South or uh, about blacks from the North or whatever about the, the way that their char- you know, who their characters are. They feel like fully realized people in the way they interact with each other. And there's a natural chemistry between those two, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. And that makes a big difference. But uh, some people didn't necessarily see it that way. Well, actually... One more later. But first, um, John Mahoney in The Hollywood Reporter, he sort of comes at it from one political end. He says, In the Heat of the Night is a gripping and suspenseful murder mystery that affects a feeling of greater importance by its veneer of social significance and the illusion of depth in its use of racial color. Jewison's direction is flashy and fast, consistently redirecting our attention from red herring in shallow waters to melodramatic confrontations on the color line, taking advantage of the possibilities for ridicule inherent in every Northern liberal's view of the South. The point is that, perhaps because it is so obvious, it consistently works. And Jewison has directed in such a manner as to cue the hisses and cheers. It is like going to hear a, quote, controversial lecture with which you're in total agreement 
all the responses prime. So he's saying that there's kind of preaching to the choir here. I guess we weren't, you know, alive when this was out in theaters. Um, I do disagree with the beginning of it. I feel like the characters were more interesting than the actual murder mystery. That that's my point. Yeah, and I'm I'm with you on that. Um, I think the mystery is effective enough that I was always at least mildly interested in who who done it and and sort of finding out the next thing. But it's not the greatest mystery story necessarily. Um, and I think it's just an effective vehicle for the character studies and for examining those social issues. I mean, it does do that very well, I think. I agree. I think he almost underestimates that. And Jewison is Canadian, you know? Yes. So I'm wondering if that outsider's perspective might have added to kind of, you know, the way he approached this film. Yeah, maybe so. So Andrew Saris in The Village Voice was not at all impressed with, Your the, boy. with the political aspect of this film. He said... <laughs> In the Heat of the Night is not a very good movie. Not awful, just not very good. The mystery plot makes so little sense that the audience is forced to concentrate exclusively on the vaudeville routines performed by Rod Steiger and Sidney Poitier. In this year of Clay and Carmichael, Black Power and Blackened Powell, Hollywood will probably follow the lead of the rest of the country in bending over backward to be unfair to the Negro by giving the Oscar to Steiger rather than to Poitier. What bothered me most about In the Heat of the Night was the bland assumption that any Negro, however noble and privileged, could find rapport with a white man who was capable of addressing and undressing him as boy. Some words in our social vocabulary are irrevocable, and boy, I should think, is one of them. A little word indeed for so many centuries of slavery and emasculation. And he has a lot more to say, as usual. But I feel like he's backed up his arguments there, you know? Yeah. Um, the one thing I'll say is... Uh, you can't, you can't, Sidney Poitier is great. So is Rod Steiger. You can't undo one great performance because there's another great one in there, right? Right. I mean, I did think it was interesting that he had predicted exactly what we were just talking about, what, which, what happened at the Oscars. But yeah, I mean, he's dismissing them both essentially as, as vaudeville. And this wasn't the only review that I found that seemed to imply that this movie was a comedy in some way, which I really did not see that at all. I didn't get it as a comedy either. Um, and, but, uh, you know, he does kind of reiterate the other point that I made that that murder mystery does get a little murky at parts and kind of, um, uh, you know, you're so high and so invested in the characters and the story. And then you're like, wait, what, huh? And it kind of, you know, brings it down just a little bit. I guess. I mean, I felt like I could always follow the beats. You're of so the smart, mystery. Josh. You're the smartest detective. We all no, know. No, 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 no. I, I, what I mean is that. <laughs> Even though I wasn't, you know, I, I, I felt like I understood each development. You're right that it's not always super compelling. Yeah. You know, you're not always on the edge of your seat. Like, wait, that guy, like who we never really cared about. You, we care about Rod Steiger and Sidney Poitier. Right. And obviously they didn't do it. So, I, I mean, I kind of figured who who done it? Oh, well, you're so smart now, aren't you? I, sometimes they called me Mr. Tibbs. So, you know, that's why. Um, no, but I, I mean, you know, there's, you see enough movies, you see a character early on, you kind of like, oh, well, they haven't paid attention to him in a while. Right. You know, we're going to have to get back to him at some point. Right. And yeah. then when they do, it's like very quickly, but confrontational. And you're like, eh, there's more to this than meets the eye. Yeah. 
No, I think so. I mean, that's like the the Roger Ebert law of economy of characters. You know, there's only so many people it could possibly be. But again, I felt like it 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 added up, and a lot of murder mystery movies don't. So that in that sense, I thought it was perfectly solid. I mean, it's based on a novel by a guy who wrote detective stories. So, many of you know, them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know, presumably he knew how to construct this sort of thing. Also, so, that would be a horrible way to advertise the film based on a novel by a guy who wrote detective stories. Well, no, but my point is that I don't know if the novel, I should have looked, I don't know if it was a sort of a bestseller, the novel necessarily before this movie came out. I don't either, but obviously the series was successful because he wrote so many more and there were two sequels, uh, kind of, I guess. To this movie. Two other Virgil Tibbs movies. Right, 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 right. But which were not based on the, the later Virgil Tibbs novels. So had you seen this one? No, never seen it. So it was exciting. Um, and I know what, uh, how much you revere this film. So I was really glad to sit down and watch it. Also, uh, like we talked about Titans of the craft, right? Those two actors, Norman Jewison, major, major figure as a director. So, um, I was really excited to sit down and watch this one. Yeah, I, uh, I have seen it. I saw it not even that long ago, but a few years ago. And I remember at the time, I mentioned this related to Point Blank, too, that when I watched it and I did my little list of movies I'd seen for the first time that year from other years, this was my number one pick that year. Um, I liked it a lot and I liked it a lot. Again, I feel like this movie doesn't get enough credit because people think of it as like, oh, it was that 60s movie about race relations. Like, it's just going to be teaching you a lesson about something. And I think it's so much more than that. It's funny you mentioned that, Josh. I think right now and we're in July at the time of this recording. I think this is probably my number one movie of this year that I hadn't seen before that was made in another year. So right. uh, we're in agreement, which is really boring for the podcast. <laughs> I'm glad, though. You know, sometimes I, 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 I will build up something. Oh, geez, I love this movie. And then I, I hope that you like it, too. You well, know, so I do. I do. It. And I mean, really, it's just like, um, you know, the characters, like we said, are so well drawn and the interaction between them, the performances and the direction, it's all its all great. So, I mean, you know, I always talk about how I like when an environment is a, char- is a character. And, like, this is a small southern town that they actually shot in Sparta, Illinois, because Portier was worried because he was actually in the South before and had an incident where, like, the Klan was after him because, you know, they're always idiots. And so he asked if they shoot most of it or all of it in the North. And... They shot, they did shoot some in like Tennessee, but most of it is in Illinois. And like, I feel like you get a real sense of this town, right? You do. I, I feel like that way too. And, and not necessarily one, one review that I looked at um, in a part I didn't quote mentioned how, mentioned some other movies that I don't think I was familiar with, but the idea of them sort of portraying stereotypically the South or not having a, a clear point of view about what the South is. And to me, I felt like this movie really, I mean, it doesn't like you can you can recognize some stereotypes, but it's not just that. It does feel real, like you're saying. Yeah, there's that car chase where like the four racist white guys are chasing Tibbs and they're chasing them all through different areas of town and like the stuff that Jewison decides to like focus on, whether it's like a dumping site or like little kids outside watching, like really add color to the film. Yeah, I agree. So Dave, had you seen this? 
I hate this movie. I'm yeah. just kidding, guys. But uh, uh, yeah, no, I'd never seen it before. It was my first time. But of course, the Mr. Tibbs line is just something, a pop culture <laughs> What, what thing. line is it? Yeah. <laughs> you can make Dave do it too now? I'm not going to do it, but okay. Jason will do it again, I'm sure. I'm sure he'll do it one more time. Um, yeah, Dave and I watched this movie together. It was a nice little moment. Recently? Sure yeah, yeah, for this podcast. Uh, I guess I wasn't invited. You were out of town. I figured as much. I wanted to put the guilt on you guys. That's all good. Yeah. But I did have that experience too, you know, and I I like this movie so much. And, you know, you sit down with a friend and you're like, oh, this movie is great. And you watch it together. Do they like it? Do they like it? You know? Do you guys have any snacks? Have any good snacks? I don't think we had any snacks. No, we didn't eat anything. No. Well, then I just snacked on the great performances in this movie. That is right. (laughs) So, any other background on this you want to mention? Uh, Let's see, Josh. Yeah, we got to mention Haskell Wexler, the uh, famed cinematographer, director of photography. This is the first movie that ever lit uh, African-American actor based on the skin tone, which is revolutionary, mm. man. Right. And it's still something that that uh, not always done well. Yeah. And here you have so many iconic shots of Portier, right? Like um, when he's in the jail and you see like the kind of reflections of the betting bars coming off of him and in the office with um, Gillespie, the sheriff. And so, I mean, uh, props to Wexler on this one and uh, pretty awesome, pretty, pretty monumental achievement in, uh, in cinematography there. Yeah, I agree. Um, And, and I think Wexler, you know, we talked a lot about uh, the evolution of cinema in this year and, you know, also the, the social conscience. And he was about to make one of those, I think is, uh, 68 was when he directed Medium Cool, one of those uh, major uh, turning point films. So uh, quite a talent there, Haskell Wexler. He's not just medium cool. He's very cool. On that note, <laughs> we'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on In the Heat of the Night. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we are talking about the best picture winner in the heat of the night, which we all really liked, which is nice. Yay, end of podcast, bye. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think we've, we've gone through this season talking about a lot of challenging artistic films that we've sort of maybe struggled with to various degrees. And this movie is... It's a mainstream film, but it's a really well-made mainstream film. Yeah, I, I obviously now it would be a Netflix or a Amazon-only release, right? Yeah, uh, maybe. But it's great that it was, again, such a big hit back then um, and, um, you know, spawned so many ancillary uh, revenue streams and intellectual properties, I'd say. So, mm. um, and, you know, I mean, it comes down to this kind of rock solid, uh, you know, uh, oppositionally, you know, what's the word I'm looking there for? Like confrontational relationship between Gillespie and Tibbs and just like perhaps the um, the respect that Gillespie has for Tibbs, whether he wants to or not, he has to, right? Right. Um, and that's all there in the performances, I think. Yeah, and I, I like that, that he doesn't either remain completely opposed to everything about Tibbs through the movie, nor does he like learn to be not racist uh, even by the end. I mean, I think, you know, eventually Gillespie and, and, and the other cops too, they respect Tibbs. They 
value his insights and helping them solve the case. And they see him at least as a full person, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they've solved racism in Sparta, Mississippi. Well, that's why they had to have the seat. No, I'm just <laughs> um, But no, but you know, it's funny. Josh is like, you know, he does these little things, Jewison, where it's like, um, you know, where like those four racists chase down Tibbs and they're in like the warehouse that obviously later on, um, uh, Kevin Bacon uses in, in Footloose <laughs> to do that dance sequence. So uh, what a warehouse. Yeah, is, is is dancing legal in Sparta, Mississippi? <laughs> we, we never really find out. We, we don't know. But um, uh, so anyway, they chase him down and, you know, Tibbs has, it's four on one. They all have weapons and Tibbs has like a, a lead pipe. He's fending him off. And then you see Gillespie there and like he waits a second before he, you know, tells the racist, like, get out of here, you racist. Right. You know, and it's like, is he waiting to see how Tibbs is going to handle himself? Is he waiting to see because he wants Tibbs to take a beating? Is he, What is he waiting for at this moment? And then he goes and he punches the racist in the stomach, which is a nice moment. So it's interesting, though, because it's all that um, interpretive shades. Like, it could mean any of those things, right? Right, right. And I think there's also the aspect, one of the, the sort of subtler aspects of that character that I liked is that Gillespie is also in some ways an outsider in this town. He's been hired to become the sheriff or the police, the police chief, I think, not sheriff. And from somewhere else, we don't know exactly where, but a lot of the characters imply like, hey, we brought you in here, Gillespie, and you better do what we tell you. And so he's sort of on thin ice in a way, too. Uh, definitely. I mean, you know, there's that scene where I think it's the mayor after in the iconic scene where um, Endicott, who's like the rich, white, you know, racist uh, we have to separate which racist is ri which here. So he's <laughs> yeah. a rich white racist. You know, he slaps Tibbs and sl Tibbs slaps him right back, which was uh, Portier. I had read like that was the reason he said he's like, I'll do this movie. But if he's going to slap me, I get to, you know, I have to slap him back. And, you know, which is a huge moment if you're in right. the live audience and, you know, um, you hear the cheers and everything. Um, and, you know, then afterwards, Endicott breaks down crying. I could have used to have shot you right, you know, on the spot for that. And then uh, that's reiterated by the mayor when he tells Gillespie, he's like, you know, my last police chief would have shot Tibbs and just claimed self-defense. So, like, get your act together. And it's like, yeah, be more racist. Be more racist, you fella. Or something like that. Right. right. I, I wasn't sure in that scene if the mayor was saying that to, to, to tell Gillespie, like, hey, you should have shot Tibbs. Or the mayor was saying that in a sort of amazed way, like, wow, Gillespie, you're so enlightened. You didn't shoot him right on the spot. I, I thought, and Dave will get, uh, we chime in after me. I thought it was this whole idea of like the whole town is, like you said, they're like, none of them seem to love Gillespie and they're all wanting Tibbs to leave or die. Right. So it was like, look, if you don't get him out of here one way or the other, this, it's going to be, you know, a powder keg that explodes. I mean, on the other hand, though, the mayor doesn't want Tibbs to leave because he's the one who uh, the widow of the man who's been killed, Colbert, uh, who was bringing this factory to town. She says, if you don't leave Tibbs on the case to solve the murder of my husband, I'm going to pick up and move my factory elsewhere. And the town needs this. And so the mayor wants everything to be sort of calmer so that Tibbs will stay and solve the murder. Well, and I thought that was some really good writing there, right? Because now you've set up the reason why Tibbs has to stay from the town standpoint, right? right? And we know why he has to stay. Well, we get some good insight. You know, one, his chief tells him to stay, his chief from Philadelphia. And then two, 
um one one of the great things is i don't think they they have tibbs has dimensions right he's not perfect he makes mistakes right and it kind of costs him until the end he's like i should have seen this earlier but i was too obsessed with thinking i was right you know so um yeah that 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 part really worked for me but i think maybe the mayor got to the point where it's like hey uh, because he says like the widow's not back till tuesday so find a way to get rid of him right that. no that's true uh, just a side note, I want to say that one of the things I loved going back to sort of the the colorful nature of the town and the sense of place, the mayor is the guy who runs the auto body shop. I kind of love that. And they go, that's where when Gillespie first goes to have a meeting with the mayor and with Colbert's widow, he's walking into this like uh, mechanics shop and you're like, what is he doing? And there's the mayor sitting in his office because that's his job. So I just really like that as like a nice little detail that wasn't overplayed. Yeah, I didn't even notice that. So yeah, there you go. So um, yeah, that that I feel like we should maybe talk a little more about that moment where uh, Tibbs slap, slap. slaps Endicott, yeah. who is not only a rich white racist, but almost like a stereotype of an old school like plantation owner. Like he literally owns a plantation where black people pick cotton. There was definitely some Django uh, unchained uh, <laughs> kind of feelings going on. There. And he's got this, this older black servant who brings some lemonade. And I mean, it's definitely a moment engineered to be like, here is the embodiment of like old school Southern white racism. And let's get Sidney Poitier, the embodiment of like progressive Hollywood to slap him in the face. Yeah. Again, Poitier demanded that that go in because it wasn't in the original draft where the original draft was, which we've seen, you know, many times on film, uh, you know, black guy has to hold back for fear of repercussions of what will happen to him. Right. So, right. This was good and, and, you know, kind of jolting and, you know, at the time, like I said, maybe even revolutionary. Right. So, um, and I thought the Endicott reaction again was so interesting because they could have just stopped the scene when Tibbs and Gillespie leave, but they stay on Endicott and he like starts crying. And like, it's like, I, you feel like he is such a racist that, it, you know, it's not the slap, but the insult that a black man would dare slap. Endicott, how dare you, you know, and, <laughs> and that he's not allowed to shoot him anymore because society has gotten, you know, <laughs> yeah. horribly awry or something. But I found those little acting moments very interesting. Yeah, totally. I like that that, that scene has been called the slap heard around the world. That's fun. Yeah, there was a on I, on the DVD that, yeah. that we watched, there was a special feature about this. Did yeah. you watch the special feature? Nick? I didn't watch it, but I, I did see online, though, that that's what they like call that scene. Yeah. yeah. But I wanted to go back to something else you said, Jason, and the idea that the the dimensions that they give to Tibbs, and one of the things is that he is kind of really fixated on the idea that he can somehow prove to these racist white people that he's better than them. And, and he is better than them, obviously, but I think that the idea that they would actually learn something from that, he's sort of deluded into thinking, that if he just does, you know, if he solves this case and he brings down someone like Endicott, that it'll somehow change things here. But of course it won't. Yes. But also from the point of Tibbs, it had it been Endicott and had he been right all along, like that character is not nearly as interesting one. Right. And two, Endicott, you know, the um, rival factory owner or whatever, like he's such an obvious suspect. It, it would have dropped the whole story down a few notches. 
to me, it worked. That worked on both levels, like as kind of the red herring of, you know, it's not the guy that he thinks he is. And also he's proven to be fallible, which we don't see a lot of in, you know, these kind of super cops. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that what is interesting is that he has that point of view um, and he's so sure of himself, not only as a cop, but as a morally superior person that uh, he, you know, is blinded to that, at least for a little bit. And Gillespie kind of points that out to him at one point. So and the first suspect um, who's taken into the police station for the murder of uh, Colbert is Tibbs. So, right. So like you've already set up like this huge uh, confrontation before anything's already happened because this town of, like you said, racist white cops thinks, oh, there's a black guy at the train station. He must be the guy who murdered the white guy. So now the person who has to work with him, the police chief, they already are at loggerheads in such a strong and um, aggressive way. Like how, how do you kind of you know, resolve that. And I think that's what the journey of the movie really does well. Right, right. And Gillespie is just as quick as anyone to believe it. Uh, it's, it's well, He seems to believe every suspect that he gets to is yeah, like, no, is it's wrapped up. I found a wallet. <laughs> <laughs> that That is true. And that that is one of the things that I think is uh, maybe, you know, to bring in some kind of criticism is that gets a little repetitive in this movie where Gillespie is so quick to, to, he just wants to wrap up the case. And you understand that from his sort of character perspective that he wants to have someone in custody who is blamed for this, almost whether or not it's actually true, just so he can say he did it. But it is a little comical how many times that happens. And also how many times they're like, all right, Virgil, get out of here, go home. And and, and then they're like, no, no, wait, come back. (laughs) Well, Josh, so uh, again, great setup to all the pressure that the Gillespie character is feeling. One, he's in a town where he's not wanted, right? And not loved. Two, all of his deputies are idiots or whatever. All the other police officers are morons. Right. right? Not only they're morons, but they're morons who don't respect him. Yeah. And they just kind of just like, like playing jokes, but like not doing any work, you know? And then three, there's that whole scene where um, they say, oh yeah, I think Tim's will be dead by Saturday if he sticks around. And the mayor's like, we, well, we can't have that. This whole town will like explode if that happens. So there's all this pressure on him. One, Solve the case to make sure Tibbs doesn't die. Three, the police suck. You're basically on your own. Like, um, and four, none of us like you anyway. So we're gonna try to get rid of you. And it's like there's a lot kind of closing in on this guy. Right, right. There is. And and one of the things also, again, sort of in the depiction of the town that is fascinating is you you mentioned the mayor says we can't have Tibbs get killed because this town will explode. And the reason for that is the sort of almost entirely unseen, like half of the town that is populated by black people. Yeah. Um, And we only really see that at the end when he goes to the, I get what you call it, a back alley or a legal abortion uh, clinic where the white girl is going to go to get an abortion. Yeah. But I thought that was fascinating that there are enough glimpses of that or, or even when we have the car chase where those uh, the four racist guys are trying to chase down Tibbs. And we see, as you were saying, the, the sort of different areas of town that they drive through. And you realize there's this whole other kind of run down area where all of these black people are living. And it gives you a sense of so much beyond the people that we see and the world that we see that the white people inhabit. Yeah, we see um, the one 
gentleman who is like a mechanic who fixes the car and kind of says that Tibbs can stay at their, I don't know if it's like a motel or just a housing uh, area that he's allowed to stand. But it's for me, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I I grew up in New Jersey in the 80s and my town was considered very progressive because we were a mixed town. But there was definitely like white area, black area. And like I would, you know, go play basketball in the black area or, you know, I'd have friends come over and we would do whatever. And it's like, but there was such a, even, even in the eighties, like there was such a, even whatever the integration was, there was still a segregation of like living spaces. Right. And I mean, I think that's something that still exists uh, in, in most places, really. Yeah. It's kind of sad that like we watched this movie from 1967 and you're like, man, so much of this still rings true. And like the disrespectful language and, you know, just the idea of like the uh, value of a life because someone is a different color. It's just, I can't believe we're still dealing with this. Yeah, no, I mean, almost everything in this movie could be today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and other things too, other, other kind of social issue stuff. And that's another thing that I really like about this movie is that it tackles a lot of heavy themes beyond just racism. Um, I mean, the whole idea of the factory coming into town and that they are so dependent yeah, on it's this gonna one save guy. The, right. The right. economy, it'll save the, you know, create jobs and all that. So Right, right. And not only do they need to solve the murder because someone was murdered and that's what you do, but like the, the widow character holds all this power because she can take away this factory that will like ruin the economy of this little town. Yeah, uh, agreed. And then, then Kevin Bacon's got nothing to dance for. <laughs> what was the what was the economy of that town really? I think it was similar to this, wasn't it? Was so, it? I mean, there was tractors. There were tractors, uh, yeah. But, and then they raced them. So. Speaking of Footloose, uh, this movie has a great soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. The soundtrack on this movie is fantastic by Quincy Jones. Um, Ray Charles, the theme song. Yep, right, that yep. theme song is great, which I don't know why that wasn't nominated for an Oscar. I, I looked it up. I figured it must have been, but right. it wasn't. You know, no, so. no. Um, but that is great. And I think one thing that Quincy Jones does really well with the music in this movie is it's this balance between the sort of like funky, jazzy stuff that you would expect from him and the southern country sounds. I mean, we have some actual country songs on the soundtrack um, that are not by Quincy Jones, but just the the score has that balance to it. He's so I mean, and Dave, if you want to speak to it, like he's got such a breadth of knowledge of different styles of music, like. His soundtrack work uh, is, you know, some of the best ever on film. Yeah, I was thinking about it. There's not many people like him nowadays that like do do every genre and like mix it all together into a film score. Yeah, or an album. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I will say also uh, the country songs that they choose. It's not just like, well, it's the South and it's redneck, so we'll have some country. These are like the most corn pone country songs you could possibly wow. find my favorite foul al on the prowl that is a great <laughs> whoa great one do you know the story behind that one I, I saw it's a cover right it's not a cover i mean i heard the intro beats and i was like oh i know because i knew the song that it was supposed to be okay. when i heard the intro it's sam the sham and the pharaohs hey there little red riding hood right but they right. couldn't get the they couldn't get the rights to that so quincy jones wrote oh gotcha. Fell out on the prowl which sounds oh, wow. exactly like it so, yeah that's awesome. but i feel like that works especially in the scene because it's being played by 
the the diner owner who turns out to be spoiler turns out to be the murderer <laughs> yep. um but even if he wasn't the murderer he's obviously such a sleaze ball that he is a total foul owl on the prowl definitely and it works perfectly on the prowl yeah <laughs> yeah um josh i mean right in your wheelhouse there's this one scene here where they're uh gillespie and virgil are at gillespie's house and they're drinking and Gillespie says, you know, you're really special. You're no one's ever been here before. You're the only one. Homosexual undertones in that scene oh, for you, Josh? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. That's a really good scene. I, I no, I don't think so. Really? Because I kind of got it really? there. I definitely got it there because okay. he was like, you know, I'm not married. I don't have kids. And right. like the way he's talking to Virgil, he's like, You ever been married? He's like, No. And he goes, You ever been close? And they like kind of talk about it. And then when um so i was like wow where are they going with this i was like almost amazed that i felt like they could have gone there and that seems based on improvs between steiger and uh portier but um what and then that, that it just takes such a right hand turn when uh portier basically says like yeah things aren't any worse for me than they are for you right like they're equals and he's like don't you know, and then he gets back into the racism, like you're not equal to me and all this. Right. Thing. Well, I thought that was what was so great about that scene is that they're having this raw bonding moment as human beings and they're realizing how their circumstances are similar. They're both these kind of lonely guys who are just devoted to their work as cops. They don't have significant others. They don't have families. And they're they're finally sort of becoming friends. And it's this low key thing. But you realize that as much as they could sort of be friends, if Tibbs says one wrong thing, it's right back to I'm a white guy and you're a black guy and I will always be superior to you. So I thought that was fascinating and a good encapsulation of the way that Gillespie isn't really a better person than he was. Uh, yeah, I think that's a fair interpretation. So, But I mean, I guess you could also uh, get the whole... Uh, I really thought they were going to go go there with it. I like yeah. this reversal of awesome movie roles. Yeah, yeah, it's usually Josh who's, you know, got the careless whisper saxophone solo going <laughs> in all those scenes for this. Right. But I do think that's a great scene. And that's fascinating that it was based on improv because I can see that because it's got that sort of like quiet tone as opposed to the bigger tone of a lot of the other scenes. Yeah, a natural kind of friendship and bonding. Should we rate this thing, Josh? Uh, yeah, should we? Uh, I don't know, out of... Uh... Five pieces of chewed bubble gum. All right. <laughs> we have to, you know what we have to mention, in addition to the bubble gum, and, and Dave and I talked about this. I'm surprised you didn't bring it up, Jason. The awesome the sunglasses. That... Oh, I love the sunglasses. Yeah. I'd wear those right now. Yeah. Right. That's what we were saying. The yeah. yellow, they're like yellow or orange tinted, you know. Yeah, you'd look and good all, in those for not, sure. Thank you. Not just that, his entire outfit. He's like in a jumpsuit as, a, <laughs> as like a police chief. He's not wearing like some, you know, really like fancy thing. He's just like in a... A leisure suit like a one piece here like <laughs> like if dom DeLuise was going to be the police chief of this town and he's just walking around in his one piece meanwhile sydney portier is in this like very pristine suit all the time and right well i think that also speaks to like if if tibbs isn't wearing a suit all the time right they're gonna it, think he's you know yeah. uh, uh some type of criminal because he's black exactly right? so, exactly um well, yeah. So do you want to rate it out of yellow sunglasses? Well, whatever. Then? So, either one. I just wanted to make sure to get right. those in. I, I will do that. It's okay. th It gets, and I thought about this, Josh. Okay. Three and three quarters yellow sunglasses right. from me. An interesting so. rating there. Yeah. Right. I'm going to give it four yellow sunglasses. I just think this is a great movie. And, and despite its 
popularity and all the awards it won, I feel like it's an underestimated movie. As I was watching and you start to compute it in your head, like, oh, I really love it. I think I might end up giving it this or that. Right. Like, that's just natural. We're all on letterbox and blah, blah, blah. I was like, at points, it was four and a half at points. It was four. But the kind of like I like I said, the the murder mystery part just kind of dropped it down for me a little and. You know, I didn't it obviously it's a driver of the story, but it didn't work as well as the rest of the story for me. No, and that's totally fair. So, Dave, what do you want to rate this? I almost feel like copying Jason here. I want to give it three <laughs> and three quarters, but I'll go with three and a half. That's, All right. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So uh, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of In the Heat of the Night. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we've been talking about the best picture winner in the heat of the night. And as we kind of uh, mentioned a bit earlier, uh, legacy-wise, because this movie was such a huge sensation, uh, it did spawn two sequels starring Sidney Poitier as Virgil Tibbs, not featuring any of the other characters. Uh, they call me Mr. Tibbs. That line was such a huge sensation that they had to use it as the title for the sequel. Uh, came out in 1970 and the organization in 1971. And I actually watched They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, which is not good. And the biggest problem with that movie is that it is essentially a different character. Not only does it not take place in Sparta. and It's it in does, San Francisco, right? It's in San Francisco, but... They, you know, in this movie, it's it's clearly established that Tibbs is from Philadelphia. He's single. He doesn't have kids. And in the sequel, all of a sudden, not only does he now live in San Francisco, but he's lived there his whole life. He has a wife and two kids who definitely would not have uh, cropped up in the three years between these two movies because they're far too old. And and he's yeah. So he's just a generic like city cop guy. He could they could have easily made the exact same movie and just changed the name. It just sounds like, again, a movie ahead of its time because of all these crappy reboots where you're supposed to forget <laughs> yeah. what happened three years earlier. It's like the amazing Spider-Man tips here or something like that. But the weird thing about it is that you're obviously not supposed to forget because they take that line title, yeah. and they make it the title. It has nothing to do with the story of the movie. They call me Mr. Tibbs, but not in the way that you remember <laughs> exactly. from the line that I just said, which is the title of the movie. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And so it just, it just has this very boring police procedural story. It has almost no like social commentary to it whatsoever. There's no racism at all. And it just is just dull. And uh, so I did not watch the third one, which uh, judging from some commentary on Letterboxd sounds like it's a little better, but um, still just has nothing to do with Tibbs. As a I writer. haven't seen this movie. I won't watch it because you said it's bad. I just think like it's almost impossible to repeat what they did with the relationships. I mean, I'm thinking of something of like lethal weapon where they were able to pull it off more than once. Right. And, um, but yeah, if you don't have that dynamic, what is there? Right. I mean, and they don't even try, they could have said, okay, well, Tibbs is now going to have some sort of other character who he's going to play off yeah. of, but they really don't. Martin Landau is in it. Um, who gets kind of big second billing. And I thought maybe that would be it, but he just, he plays, uh, Tibbs old friend who is, uh, a suspect in the murder and he's, 
long stretches of the movie he's not even in. So it definitely doesn't have that same dynamic. Yeah. Does he say the line again? No, no. I mean, I feel like that would have been really bad. It, yeah. It's bad enough that it's the title, but if they made him say it again. Like he's just at the DMV and he's like the next one online. Like, what's your name? And he's, they called me Mr. Tibbs. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully they don't do that. But, but again, it's just so generic and they make him this like, he like slaps his kids around and he's not even the kind of morally outstanding Why? guy that Tibbs was. Well, I guess my real question is if Sidney Portier was so careful curating the films he was doing and, uh, the you know social aspects of what was going on. Why would he agree to do two more of these? I don't know. Or why would he agree to do these ones? You know, right. I mean, the idea of the character coming back isn't necessarily inherently bad. Yeah, but yeah, it just seems like it was very misguided. Now, on the other hand, Josh, the TV show in the heat of the night, which was going uh, late '80s through the early to the mid '90s with Carol O'Connor. And do you remember who played Tibbs? In uh, that it's, one? it's Howard Rollins who yeah. played Tibbs. Um, that was very successful. Uh, Carol O'Connor won an Emmy for it. Yeah. And they won two NAACP awards, one for Rollins and one for the show as a whole. And that was a very uh, popular television show when we were younger. It was. And it's weird that it took all that time. It was 1988 that that show started. And that that many years after the movie for some reason, someone decided, wait, this is what we should make a TV show. No, I don't mind that. You know? No, I just I just wonder sort of like what happened that that was decided at that time that, you know what, we need a show based on in the heat of the night. I mean, probably the same thing with like the Mighty Ducks that just came out, that new Mighty Ducks. Yeah. That's what I will kind of compare right. it to. When is the time right for a Mighty Ducks reboot? Maybe always, but maybe the answer is now. Right, right. I mean, I guess this is something that we see now. Where like studios who own any property are like, how can we exploit this? But I think of it less back then. And uh, maybe Carol O'Connor wrote on the show also under yeah. a different name. So I wonder if, you know, because he was such a major star of television and after All in the Family, maybe he was looking for something and he felt like he could really chomp down on this character. Yeah, that's possible. Maybe he was just a fan of the movie and, and got it going. But I definitely remember this being one of those basic cop shows that was on every All week when I was younger. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 88 to 94 is were the years that this ran on two different networks on NBC and CBS. So one of those shows that was popular enough that a second network picked it up. After yeah. It was well, canceled. they had issues where like Rollins, it's kind of a sad story. Yeah. He had the alcohol problems and, and Tibbs actually left as a character and right. was replaced. They, they later had to in the fire show. him. You yeah. Know, and replaced him with Carl Weathers, which right. I'm well, always for. There you go. You can't, uh, can't go wrong with Carl Weathers. Um, so, and then Tibbs as a character also, as we kind of alluded to, appeared in six more novels by John Ball. He wrote Tibbs novels from 1965 to 1986. So that was one of his major characters as a crime novelist. He wrote a lot of other books too, but Tibbs was a big character. And I don't know if those books are any good, but it is a little weird that no one decided to actually adapt those novels. You would think that would be a TV show right now for um, like Amazon or something like that. Right. Know? The Mr. The Virgil Tibbs TV Tibbs, show. Yeah. Now? Or something. Like I could that. see that. Yeah. I mean, someone's got to own this, this IP right now. Why, why isn't Virgil Tibbs in the background of Space Jam, A New Legacy? You know? Come well, on. it's funny, Josh, because Thankfully that he's not. Yeah. But uh, Sterling Siliphant, the screenwriter here, Josh, did go on to create Perry Mason, if I'm not mistaken. And Perry Mason was just rebooted in that type of limited series we were talking about. So it all 
comes together. Not at all, Josh. No. Um, but still a fan also the towering Inferno and most importantly wrote over the top, the excellent Stallone movie about arm wrestling. Have and you truck actually seen driving. that movie? It's so good. I'll watch it anytime you want. Wow. So. Okay. It might, you know, I don't remember. I think it might be 85 or so, but like, if we get to that year, that might be a Jason pick. Wow. So, All right. Yeah. yeah Sterling Silifon, uh like has a million credits, was a very prolific screenwriter. Yeah. And Norman Jewison, as you said, a huge figure in Hollywood. And it's interesting. I think w- before we did this, we were talking about, oh, yeah, this is a Norman Jewison movie. He's known for making these socially conscious movies. And he did make a number of other movies that are known as these big social issue films and Justice for All with Al Pacino, uh, The Hurricane much, much later in the 90s with, yeah. with Denzel Washington, even Rollerball, which I, I think we watched in a class yeah, in high school, didn't we? Mr. Baranoff's uh, class, who was our European history teacher. But the idea of corporations taking over and, you know, the oligarchies, which, are, uh, which has happened. It was very prescient. Yeah, Rollerball. But I mean, as much as he made those movies and some other social issue dramas that weren't as big, he worked in so many genres. I mean, he was also Oscar nominated for directing Moonstruck. Uh, he did music, major musicals, Fiddler on the Roof and Jesus Christ Superstar. The movie he made right after this was the original Thomas Crown Affair yeah. with Steve McQueen. Just a real craftsman, man. And yeah. a great director. I definitely, I, you know, the one that stands out to me that I haven't seen is Injustice for All, which... There are more on this list I haven't seen, but Moonstruck, it made me want to watch Moonstruck again. Really good character piece. I didn't see, did you see his last movie, The Statement? No, I don't think a lot of people did. And that was in 2003 uh, with Michael, another social issue movie with Michael Caine in this true story of a French uh, official who uh, was charged with Nazi war crimes much, much later. Um, I don't what know a, if that movie's any good. What a delightful romp that movie! Well, be. well, but yeah. I mean, I think this is this is sort of <laughs> no. fits with the social hey, conscience of his film. I think the Hurricane was the one he did right before then. That was a huge hit, and you know Denzel got Denzel should have won. I remember that year. I couldn't tell you who beat him, but I thought he should have won for Best Actor. Jewison also created the Canadian Center for Advanced Film Studies, so like his tree of like people who are working, uh, who have learned uh, their craft because of what he was able to give back to the industry is immeasurable. And, and good for him for supporting Canadian film in his, you know, his homeland. Because, uh, you know, it seems like uh, Canadians come to Hollywood and they don't always all go back and, and support it there. So that's good. I'd like to see. He's still alive. Maybe yes. he can do a cameo on Letter Kenny. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, hasn't he's still alive, but has not made. I mean, he's in his 90s now. Yeah. But 2003 was that Michael Caine movie was the last one he made. Uh, he never won a Best Director Oscar. But he did. Isn't get, that wild? Like you would think he did, right? Yeah, he was nominated, I think, three times for Moonstruck and In the Heat of the Night and one other. Maybe um, the Hurricane. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. But he did get the Irving G. Thalberg Award, which is, uh, you know, an honorary type award in 1999. Like, that's like the we fucked up and should have <laughs> given you this award at some point award. <laughs> exactly. Um, so as we said, Sidney Poitier was a huge star at this time and continued to be through the 60s and 70s. Uh, and then kind of transitioned into directing and uh, is also still alive, but is retired. The last thing he did was a TV movie in 2001, uh, which was the same year he too won an honorary Oscar. I've forgotten that he was like a director of comedies. Yeah, he did like Stir Crazy, right? I think. Yeah, Stir Crazy and as well as uh, Uptown Saturday Night, which was Robert Townsend's big breakthrough and Ghost Dad starring 
Bill Cosby. All right. Let's go on to the next thing, Josh. Yeah. So we talk about Rod Steiger, who's like yeah. regarded as one of the best character actors of the 20th century. And the more you read about him, it's kind of a sad story, too, because he was so, um, you know, he took this his work so seriously. Like, he turned down roles based on, like, moral stances like Patton. He was offered Patton, and he didn't take that. And then he kind of, like, had health problems. And then he would just be like, well, I'm looking for interesting characters, so I'll work in any country. And it's like, well, I need money, so I'll do all these B-movies. And um, he's such an interesting actor. Obviously, they're both top-notch. Um, and he was nominated. He won for this. He was also nominated Best Supporting Actor on the Waterfront and Best Actor of the Pawnbroker, where he lost to Lee Marvin, Cat Baloo. Oh, <laughs> Lee Marvin. Um, yeah, he worked again with Norman Jewison on The Hurricane, as well as Fist, starring uh, Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, there you go. Which not over the top. No, not over the top. And despite its title, is a, a another serious social issue drama about unions. Yeah. Um, and weirdly, his final film in 2002, Pool Hall Junkies by Mars Callahan, I, I have seen. I used to like that movie. I have a poster of that movie. It's so bad. <laughs> is, remember, is Walken in that movie? Yeah, Walken's in yeah, it. Yeah. It was one of those weird vanity projects where I remember interviewing Mars Callahan for some reason for an article when that movie came out and where he like somehow got resources and had never done anything. He's like, I'm going to make this movie where I'm the writer and the director and the star. I'm going to get Rod Steiger and Christopher Walken to have to act with me. Yeah. But wasn't it like, was that, I might be confusing it with suicide Kings, but wasn't like, was Ben Affleck and Vin Diesel in this movie, Pool Hall Junkies, or I know. don't think so. Yeah, I don't think they were in no, it. No, I mean, I think Walk In and Rod say it was not like a, a big budget film, yeah. but it was definitely like this guy's weird van. Maybe project. I liked Suicide Kings in the boiler room and not Pool Hall Junkies. So. Yeah, uh, I definitely did not like it. And he was kind of, he comes off as a real smarmy dude. You know what's now? running in my head right now, Josh, since we mentioned Lee Marvin? I just want to hear like a conversation with him and Sidney Portier where he's like, they call me Mr. Tibbs. And he's like, I know what they call you. <laughs> they call you Mr. Tibbs. <laughs> such a such a cavalcade of impressions here this season. <laughs> Steiger. Um, we talked about Stuart Rosenberg earlier this year for Cool Hand Luke. Yeah. Uh, he was in the Amityville Horror, which Rosenberg directed. Oh, yes. Um, you know, we mentioned uh, on the waterfront. Uh, I read that De Niro modeled his performance of uh, Al Capone in The Untouchables on Steiger's performance of Al Capone, Dr. Shivago, you know, just tons of tons of he's such an interesting actor. Yeah, a great character actor. And, and like you said, kind of had this long decline at the end, unfortunately. Kind of sad there at the yeah. end. And Portier, we have mentioned, I think the defiant ones is uh, with Tony Curtis would probably be the next one I should watch that I haven't seen. Yeah, I haven't um, seen that either. Legend, you know, all-time legend, and uh, you know, no doubt one of one of the all-time greats there, also. Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to briefly mention Lee Grant, who plays the widow in this film. Yeah, great actor. And uh, she's still also in her nineties and still working periodically. And I saw her at the TCM festival talking about her very first movie, Detective Story, with Kirk Douglas. So that's cool. I wonder if because I know she was very much of that. New York, Stella Adler, Uta Hagen scene. I wonder, and I think Steiger was too. I wonder if they knew each other from that kind of acting world. It's entirely possible. So she's also kind of an underrated character actor, but, uh, you know, still going, which is cool. So uh, anything else on the legacy you want to mention here? Nope. 
All right. Uh, I will say, oh, you know what? I, sh I should give credit. We talked about Quincy Jones. The one good thing about They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, the sequel, great Quincy Jones music. All right. Right on. You know, so he's uh, obviously a great and uh, went on to do lots of great film scores. So that is In the Heat of the Night. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. Do it. AwesomeMovieYear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Belongs in a Southern jail cell somewhere. Check out my other podcast, Food and Loathing. It's about food in Las Vegas. And there's loathing. You do impressions on that podcast? If they call for it, I'll do anything. I did eat uh, Inferno curry this week on it, so I'll do anything. All right. I'm an idiot and an attention <laughs> whore. <laughs> Works out well for us. Uh, you can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, where I did once write something about In the Heat of the Night. Uh, Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And don't forget about our Produced by David Rosen Patreon, where there's still the bonus awesome movie or episode on Old Boy. And I've been posting some uh, music stuff lately, a bunch of bonus music stuff. Mm, Are you, you... going to do a cover of Foul Owl on the Prowl? <laughs> I'm thinking about it right now. Can you give us a sample at the moment? <laughs> ow, ow, ow. No, I, I, I'm going to save that for later. I was ready for Yeah, you got you to gotta sign up for the Patreon to get it. Don't give it away for free that's right <laughs> what do we have in our next episode jason we are going to give our next episode away for free and it's dave's pick dave Ooh. what'd you pick my pick we're doing another mel brooks movie uh we're doing the producers speaking of music that we might sing okay well tune in for that <laughs> for the producers and thanks for listening to awesome movie year thank you for listening to awesome movie year Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. Dave, speaking of that soundtrack, did you guys watch the credits all the way through? Uh, I think we did because at the end of the song, uh, Ray Charles he just does like a really high kind of raspy, <laughs> and it's really good. So.